Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. In today's video, we are going to be discussing another solved case for my Curious Case series. This case was actually requested by one of you guys over on requestacase.com, so if you have any cases you would like to see me cover on this channel, then be sure to jump over there and send in your submissions. Before we delve into this episode, however, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to the people over at Netflix for sponsoring today's video. A little while ago, Netflix approached me and gave me exclusive access to watch a brand new mystery show, a crime show, that's coming to their streaming service very, very soon. The show is called Young Wallander, and let me tell you now, I am beyond excited for you guys to see the show because I was on the edge of my seat the entire time I watched it. It's a six-part series based on the best-selling novels by Henning Mankell, and it is one of those Netflix shows that you just have to binge from start to finish. Young Wallander is being released on the 3rd of September 2020 this year, so let me give you a little teaser on the first episode. The first episode begins following the young detective Wallander being awoken by a fire alarm in the early hours of the morning. When he goes to find out what exactly is going on, he discovers a crowd gathered around a young man who is tied to a fence. As Wallander tries to assist the young man, a man in black walks up behind him and then straight past him and pulls duct tape off the tied up young man's mouth. It was then that Wallander realises that there is actually a bomb inside the young man's mouth. The bomb explodes, killing the young man instantly. But who was the young man? Who was the man in black? And why have this all happened? What's going on? Wallander gets pulled into work on the case under the supervision of his superintendent and in an emotional journey that faces issues such as inequality, immigration and racism, Detective Wallander has to race against the clock to find out what happened and who is responsible. The show is full of twists and turns and it really forces you to analyse, think deeply and put the pieces together. Just when you think you know who's done it, you'll be thrown right back to square one. So pay close attention to every detail and try to figure out the case before Detective Wallander does. The show at Young Wallander is going live on September 3rd, 2020 this year on Netflix and Netflix only. And I'm super excited to see your theories and thoughts about who done it. Once again, thank you so much to Netflix for sponsoring today's episode and helping keep this channel afloat. As always, make sure you're subscribed to this channel and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new Curious Case episode. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. The 29th of April 1997 was a day that changed the lives of the entire community of Colorado Springs in Colorado, the United States, when a 22-year-old college student was brutally murdered by two strangers. Residents of the town were terrified. 
asking themselves what could lead to something so horrific. They were not expecting that a film from 1971 would be the answer. Jacine René Jelinski was born on the 16th of January 1975 to parents Peggy and Jake Jelinski. Before Jacine's birth, her father Jake had actually been an alcoholic and was addicted to speed, which is the street name for the drug amphetamine. He had also been in trouble with the law several times, including an arrest for forging prescription scripts. The courts placed him on probation on the condition that he take antibus, which is a drug that makes the user physically ill when combined with alcohol. It is used to deter alcoholics from drinking by forcing their brain to associate alcohol with being sick. Jason's mother Peggy hopes that once their daughter was born, her husband would change for the better and become more responsible. However, the added responsibility of a child only made Jake worse. He would become angry and violent, often flying into a rage for no apparent reason. 18 months after Jacine had been born, Peggy separated from her husband, telling him that he needed to leave their home immediately. She divorced him shortly after. One year later, when Jacine was two and a half years old, Peggy met a man named Bob Louisa. Bob, like Peggy, had recently gone through a rather messy divorce, and his ex-wife didn't allow him to have much contact with his son, who was about the same age as Jacine. Now, as a result of this, Bob treated Jacine as if she was his own daughter. A few years later, Peggy and Bob were married, with their daughter being the flower girl at their wedding. From an early age, Jacine loved to compete in sports. She learned to swim when she was just five years old, and by the time she was seven years old, she had placed second in the breaststroke for her age group at the state swim meet. As she grew older, it became apparent that Jacine was a child with a heart of gold, who would never see anybody left out. When she was in the second grades, there was a girl who we'll call Callie in Jacine's class who lived miles away from her school. Sometimes Callie's parents would make her walk to school if she had missed the bus. And this meant that the seven-year-old Callie had to cross busy intersections alone and was often very late to her morning classes because of it. But there was always somebody waiting for her when she arrived. Jacine would stand outside the school, whatever the weather, to ensure that Callie arrived at school safely. And her teacher allowed it because she knew Jacine was so strong-willed that she would not give up no matter how late to class it made her. Jacine was never the type of person to ever look down on anybody else, regardless of their skill and ability. She was always the person on the team who tried to coach others and help them to improve their skill. When Jacine had played soccer as a child, there was one girl on the team who had been overweight and less skilled than her teammates. This meant that she didn't spend much time playing during the matches and the other girls on the team would tease her and bully her. But Jacine didn't join in on this teasing. She would actually stay behind after practice so she could work with the other girl on her skills so that she could get better and improve. Jacine didn't lose any of these personality traits as she grew up and entered high school. She was able to establish herself as a strong leader by helping to lead her team to the Colorado State High School Basketball Championship 
twice. Jacine actually played her senior year of high school basketball in pain because of an ankle surgery that she'd had during the off season. But she didn't let it stop her from putting in all of her effort during games and practices. Jacine's coaches described her as the glue who held the teams together because of the way she made them better as athletes and better as people. She would hand out inspirational quotes that she'd written out before the games to every single player, no matter if the other girl was playing in the game or not. And she was always the one who remembered to bring a birthday cake for somebody, even if everybody else had forgotten. She always made sure to make everybody feel included. At a summer basketball camp that Jacine attended before she started her senior year, everybody was talking about a new player, who we'll call Jill, who was good enough to play on the varsity team. Because of this, some of the other girls at the camp and on the team completely ignored Jill on the first day of practice, out of fear that she would take their place on the squad. But Jacine, being the kind and caring person she was, made a point of walking over to the new girl Jill and welcoming her to the team with a massive hug. This meant that the other girls had no choice but to do the same and to include her. Tragically, in the spring of 1993, Jacine received the news that her biological father, Jake, had developed terminal lung cancer. He had been given six months to live. Her mother, Peggy, had expected Jacine to be sad or even bitter towards this news as she had barely known her father after he had walked out of her life. But instead, Jacine reacted by announcing that she was going to get to know her father. She contacted him and began to visit him regularly, spending weekends with him and as his illness progressed, even became his caregiver for a while before he sadly passed away. Jacine graduated high school in June 1993 and was awarded a full volleyball scholarship at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs, where she majored in communications. She quickly became a star player on the team and would decorate the locker room before games, cutting out inspirational sayings to tape to her teammates' lockers. During her first year at college, Jacine fell in love with a police officer in the town's police force, who was also an assistant coach for the volleyball team. After the academic year ended, she decided to stay in town so she could work and be near her boyfriend. However, Jacine's parents were not too happy about this, as they felt as though her boyfriend was using Jacine to pay for things that he wanted, including a jet ski. During this time, Jacine had been renting an apartment with friends of her boyfriend's. Everything was going great for Jacine, until shortly after she got back from a vacation to Mexico with her boyfriend. After returning from this vacation, she called her mother in tears, explaining that her boyfriend had told her that he never wanted to see her again and this absolutely devastated Jacine. Things only started looking up for her when she met a man named Tim while at work at a local hotel. He was a lot different to her last boyfriend. He made her laugh and treated her kindly. She told her mother that she was looking forward to introducing him to her and her stepfather, Bob. Even as an adult, Jacine still possessed the heart of gold that she'd had during her childhood. 
In one of her college classes, she was assigned a project to study the causes of homelessness. While she was conducting her interviews and research, she felt so badly for one particular man that she went home, packed a box full of food, grabbed an extra coat and a blanket, and then returned and gave it to him. This wasn't just the sole act of kindness either. Another time, she was out with her boyfriend Tim and spotted a homeless man who wasn't wearing any socks. She made Tim drive them both back to his apartment, where she took a pair of Tim's best winter socks from his drawer drove back and gave them to the homeless man. Despite these acts of generosity and empathy, Jacine grew to become depressed and her health started to deteriorate. She ended up suffering from glandular fever, which left her exhausted and in turn made her low mood worse. In mid-April of her final year at college, Jacine called her mother in tears, telling her that her dead father's ghost was visiting her and was moving things around her bedroom. This, unsurprisingly, startled Peggy and worried her so much that she became scared that her daughter may be contemplating suicide. So Peggy and Jacine's stepfather Bob drove to Colorado Springs and tried their hardest to convince Jacine to move back home. But she refused and told them everything was alright, although in actual fact it wasn't. She had cried the entire time her parents were there and looked extremely worn out. Jacine told her parents that she had been dreaming a lot about her father recently and said that he had been in a room and she felt his presence nearby. Her parents could tell that she was distraught. They tried their hardest to convince Jacine to move back home with them, but ultimately Jacine was stubborn and could not be convinced. Reluctantly, her parents left her in Colorado Springs and went home to Littleton. A few nights later, Jacine left her apartment, telling one of her roommates that she was going over to her boyfriend's apartment for a late night dinner. Jacine pulled up at her boyfriend's apartment complex and walked towards the security door so she could be buzzed into the building. She didn't even get to press the buzzer before a dark haired man grabbed her from behind. He wrapped one arm around her waist and placed the opposite hand over her mouth. The man pulled her violently backwards towards a second bald man who grabbed her legs. Jacine fought to free her mouth from the man's hand and began to scream for help. The two men forced Jacine into the back seat of their car, but she wasn't going to get in without giving a fight. She gripped the sides of the car's door frame to try and stop herself from being forced inside but the bald man raised his fists above his head and started bringing them down and hitting her arms to loosen her grip. He then forced her into the car, and the dark-haired man, who was sitting in the front seat, tried to hold her down while she was screaming and kicking at the roof and windows of the car. The bald man straddled Jacine and repeatedly punched her in the face for around a minute, before the dark-haired man in the front seat turned around, started the car, and drove off. Both men were so focused on the kidnapping of Jacine that they didn't care about the possibility of witnesses. Jacine's cries for help had caught the attention of four Mormon missionaries who were in the parking lot of an apartment complex across the street. They also caught the attention of several residents of the apartment complex. One resident ran outside to see what was going on and shouted down at the two men to let Jacine go. However, they acted, the two men acted as if they hadn't even heard them. 
Meanwhile, three of the missionaries had run across the street to see if they could help, while the fourth ran to a telephone and phoned for the police. As the car drove off, one of the missionaries noted that the card was a Ford Thunderbird, and another wrote down the license plate of the car, KBN 6729 a Colorado plate. When the authorities arrived at the scene, a bolo or a be on the lookout bulletin for the suspect's car was immediately put out on police radios. Police found some items on the floor that belonged to Jacine. They included a pair of black sandals, a wallet containing her driver's license, a checkbook, a social security card, her credit cards, and $157 in cash everything in the wallet was registered to Jacine. After running Jacine's driver's license through their system, police soon had a phone number for the address that was listed on it. When they called the number, Jacine's roommates answered. They told detectives that she had left their apartments just after 10.30pm to go to her boyfriend's apartment for dinner. Her roommates explained that she had recently broken up with her long-time boyfriend, who was a police officer, but they didn't know of any problems between the ex-lovers. They also told police that they didn't know of any problems between Jacine and her current boyfriend either. Next, the police called Tim, Jacine's boyfriend. He told detectives that he was waiting for his girlfriend, Jacine, to show up so they could eat dinner together. Police explained the situation and asked him to go outside and speak to an officer who had arrived on the scene. Tim was confused. He identified Jacine's car in the parking lot, but told police he hadn't even known that she had arrived at the apartment complex. When asked if he knew of any trouble between Jacine and her former boyfriend, Tim told police that there was nothing specific, but he knew that Jacine was afraid of him. Meanwhile, the Louisas were sound asleep back in Littleton. At 11.30pm, Peggy and Bob Louisa heard the answering machine go off in the kitchen and got up to see who would be calling the house at that time. On the other end of the line was Jacine's former boyfriend asking if the couple had been contacted by anybody in Colorado Springs about Jacine. He told them that he had heard something on his scanner about the Colorado Springs police looking for Jacine. The Louisas told him that they hadn't heard anything about their daughter and so he left the name and phone number of a detective working in Colorado Springs. Bob called the phone number with Peggy hovering next to him and was connected to a detective. This detective told them that the police had received a report of a woman being abducted from an apartment complex parking lot by two men. A purse had been found in the parking lot containing a driver's license belonging to their daughter, Jacine. The officer said that there had been a number of witnesses to the abduction and somebody had even noted down the license plate of the car used by the suspects. When the Louisas asked if they should drive to Colorado Springs, the detective told them to stay where they were until they had more information. Back in Colorado Springs, police had learned the identity of the man suspected of driving the car in which Jacine had been kidnapped. His name was Lucas Salmon. Lucas Salmon was born on the 9th of February 1976 in a small town in Northern California. Being the middle of five children and raised in a fundamentalist Christian church, Lucas Salmon didn't have the easiest of upbringings. His mother and father divorced when he was a young child, and from the age of 12, he was sent with his older brother to go and live with his father. 
While he lived with them, they moved around a lot due to his father remarrying multiple times. The final move was to Colorado Springs, where Lucas Salmon was about to start his senior year of high school. His mother and the three siblings that she looked after also moved there so they could all be closer as a family. Once in Colorado Springs, Lucas participated in church activities with his father and brothers. This meant that he was heavily warned against smoking, drinking, swearing, watching adult films and having premarital sex, all of which are sins according to Christianity. Just after Lucas started his senior year of high school, he got a job with a telemarketing firm. Some of his co-workers thought he was odd and even unnerving at first, but they soon came to see him as a polite and religious young man. It was while he was working at this company that he met George Waltz. At first, Lucas didn't like George, but the two soon became close friends, with George regarding him to Lucas's delight as being his best friend. George Waltz seemed to have a way with women and would brag to Lucas about the number of women he had slept with. He would invite Lucas over to watch adult films while they drank beer, smoked cigarettes and marijuana, sometimes even taking LSD. George was definitely a bad influence on his new friend. George Waltz was born on the 8th of November 1976 in South Korea, near the US Army base where his father was stationed. For the first five years of his life, George was primarily raised by the Korean side of his family, and due to this Korean upbringing, he didn't start speaking English until he started at school. As a child, his family moved around a lot due to his father's job in the army. First they moved to Germany and then Indiana, the United States. They eventually settled at the Fort Carson Army Base south of Colorado Springs in Colorado. During his childhood, George's mother would berate him about his appearance and would shout at him to make sure everything about him was perfect. And he wasn't treated any better by his father either. He would go to bars every night after work with his friends from the army and would come home drunk, angry and aggressive. He would take this anger out on his sons, including George. When George Waltz was in his senior year of high school, he moved out of his parents' house and got a job working for a telemarketing company. This is where he met Lucas Salmon. George would often tease Lucas about his Christian upbringing and about the fact that Lucas was a virgin. And Lucas was desperate for this teasing to stop, asking George to help him to find a girl to lose his virginity to. One night in March of 1997, George Waltz sat down with Lucas Salmon to show him his favourite film, Stanley Kubrick's 1971 classic, a clockwork orange. To Lucas, it seemed as though his friends just wanted to share his love for the film with him. But little did he know, George Walt had an ulterior motive. He was scoping out Lucas's reaction to what the protagonist called, quote, the old ultraviolence, but in particular, the old in and out. This was the name that the main character, Alex, had given to sexual assault. What George Waltz wanted was an accomplice. For years, he had been nurturing a fantasy of sexually assaulting a woman, and now he wanted Lucas Salmon to nurture that exact same fantasy. When the film was over, George calmly turned to Lucas and said, quote, we need to get you one for a little of the old in-out. 
Lucas smiled at him as he had been thinking along the same lines. However, he thought his friend was just joking. But then, on the 29th of April, 1997, their fantasy became a reality. The two men decided that they were going to go out and find a woman to enact their fantasy on. They set out in George Walt's green Buick and drove through the Garden of Gods just outside Colorado Springs. When he noticed a blonde woman jogging alone at the side of the road, George told Lucas, quote, she's the one. He swerved into the bicycle lane and hit the woman with his car. She flew forward and sprawled into the gravel off the side of the road. George immediately stopped the car and got out. Lucas Salmon was in complete shock. He followed his friend slowly, watching him as he made his way over to help the woman who he had just hit with his car. George asked if the woman was alright. He could see that her knees and her arm were bleeding, but she didn't seem to be seriously injured. The woman screamed at him, asking what he thought he was doing. George grabbed her arms and asked if she needed them to take her to the hospital, but she pulled away from him and declined the offer, telling them that her father was the park ranger. She then told them that if they wanted to help, they could help her find the $170 sunglasses that had flown off when they had hit her. George Walt gave up trying to get her to come with him, and so him and Lucas Salmon pretended to look for the woman's sunglasses, but soon got into their car and drove off. Later that evening, after dinner, the pair were driving around in Lucas Salmon's car when they pulled up alongside 22-year-old Jacine Gilinski at a stoplight. They decided to follow her, with George telling Lucas, quote, Yeah, we'll get you one. When they arrived at the apartment complex, they got out of the car and followed JC into the security entrance. Just as she went to press the buzzer to be let in, the pair grabbed Jacine and forced her into the back of Lucas Salmon's car. When police tracked the car, they found it outside of George Walt's apartments. One detective approached the front door while others took up positions so they had the place surrounded. At first, there was no answer when officers knocked at the front door. However, a light did go off inside of the apartment. It took for an officer to break a window to get the attention of the two men. Then, George Walt opened the door and let the officers inside. Once inside, the officers separated both George Walt and Lucas Salmon and began to question them. At first, Lucas claims that he had no idea what the detectives were talking about and that he and George had been at a bar all night until they came home. The officer questioning him then asked if he minded if police officers searched his car, and he reluctantly agreed. In the trunk of the car was a light grey sweatshirt, which was soaked in blood. On top of the sweatshirt was a wooden-handled steak knife with a bent blade. The whole thing was covered in blood. When detectives went inside to confront Lucas about what they had found, he calmly said, quote, We stabbed a girl. When police asked him more, he told them that he and George Waltz had kidnapped and stabbed a girl and left her beneath a white van. He didn't think that she was still breathing. Officers now had to get Lucas Salmon to recall where they had exactly left Jacine. There was a chance that she was still alive, they just had to find her quickly. He said that it had been a dark parking lot surrounded by a fence, but he wasn't from that part of town so he wasn't sure. Lucas wasn't sure where they had ended up after leaving the apartment complex where Jacine had been kidnapped from. He agreed to go with police to help locate her. 
They drove to the general area where Lucas thought they had been that night. As they drove around different streets, Lucas Salmon began to tell detectives pieces of information that had led up to the attack. He explained that a film called A Clockwork Orange had made him fantasize about abducting and sexually assaulting a woman, and that he and George had been looking for around a month for a woman to fulfill this fantasy. Lucas said that they had assaulted Jason and then discussed what to do next, deciding to kill Jason so that she couldn't identify them. Just after 2am, they drove over a set of speed bumps that Lucas said that he remembered. He told police they were in the right place when they pulled into a parking lot next to an elementary school. It was around a mile away from the apartment complex where they had kidnapped Jason. Immediately, the officer driving the car spotted a white van and turned on the searchlight of his vehicle. There, he saw the naked body of a young woman lying face down on the pavements underneath the van. One detective approached the body, careful not to contaminate any evidence, and checked for signs of life, but she was cold and he couldn't find a pulse. Less than a minute later, paramedics arrived at the scene and also checked for a pulse. Tragically, they couldn't find one. Jason was dead. Back at George Walt's apartment, George was also talking about the murder. He repeated what Lucas Salmon had told police, but he insisted that it was his friend who had insisted they take Jason. He, George, George put all the blame on Lucas. He told officers that Lucas was a virgin and he felt obligated to, quote, find him a girl. Both men were arrested and taken to a local hospital to have blood and hair samples taken for DNA testing. Then they went to the police station for further questioning. Once there, detectives were able to build a full picture of what exactly had happened to Jason. According to Lucas Salmon's confession, once they had pulled into the parking lot of the school, the two men began discussing what they wanted to do next. He said Jason cried in the backseat of the car, begging them not to hurt her. The pair decided that they were going to sexually assault her. When he was told to go first, Lucas Salmon refused, and so George Walt proceeded to sexually assault Jason. Then, after about five minutes, the two men traded places so Lucas was able to assault her. When this was over, the two men ordered Jason to crawl out of the car and made her lay face down on the pavement. While covering her head with a shirt so she couldn't look at them, they discussed what to do next for about 20 minutes. The conclusion they came to was that they needed to murder Jason so that she would not be able to identify them. But the men found it was a lot harder to murder somebody than it looked in the movies. They began a vicious, hour-long attack on Jason, attempting to cut her throat twice, stabbing her five times, making gashes along her arms, and when she was still breathing after all of that, smothering her with her own sweatshirt. The attack was so brutal that the blade of the knife they had used had bent and become misshapen. Once Jason had stopped breathing, George Waltz and Lucas Salmon then took mud from a nearby ditch and began taking turns using it to destroy any evidence from the rape. They figured that the mud would prevent semen samples from being collected. After they had done this, they picked her up and put her body underneath a nearby van, pushing her under until she was somewhat hidden from view. But they didn't go home right away. 
Instead, the two drove around for a while and talked about the stupid mistakes they had made while committing the multiple crimes, including being seen by witnesses. Then they went home and washed the blood off their hands. They had been watching TV when detectives showed up. George Walt's account of the crime matched Lucas Summons almost perfectly, although he placed the blame for instigating the attack on Lucas rather than himself. He claimed that Lucas had been nagging him to help him find a woman to lose his virginity to and that he was only trying to make his friend happy. Once police had full signed confessions from each of the men, they were both charged with first degree murder, kidnapping and sexual assault. Lucas Salmon was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. George Waltz was given the death penalty. However, this was commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole in 2003 due to the Supreme Court finding the ruling to be unconstitutional. After Jacine's death, her high school created a fund in her name to help disadvantaged female athletes to pay the $100 sports participation fee. Her college also set up the Jacine Jelensky Scholarship for talented female athletes, awarding them $1,500 to help them participate in sports. The college also graduated Jacine shortly after her death. When her mother, Peggy, walked the stage to get Jacine's diploma, the entire auditorium stood up and began clapping and cheering for her. And that is everything we have for you in today's case. This case was heartbreaking and devastating through and through, and it's so sad to hear Jacine's story and what an amazing person she was, what a outstanding person she was and thoughtful and selfless person and such a promised talent that could have gone really far in the sports world uh, for her life to be cut short by two rapists by two spawns of satan quite honestly two evil people is just devastating but what do you think about this case let me know in the comment section down below Again, thank you to Netflix for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, their new series, Young Wallander, comes out on the 3rd of September. There will be another video next week, and I think the week after, or the week after that, about the show. So I'll keep reminding you about it. It's a really, really good show. Um, so I'm so excited for you guys to see it. Make sure you're subscribed to this channel and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new Curious Case episode just like this one. My social media handles on both Twitter and Instagram are at it's Joshua Miles. Follow me on those platforms for behind the scenes content and announcements and things about me if you're bothered. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.